0: the last podcast of the year and apparently I'm being kicked out of the house chair. I'm Rob Lawrence and this is EMS One Stop. I am not today's host. I'm going to hand over now to the editor-in-chief of EMS1 of Police1 and of Fire Rescue1, Greg Fries.
1: Rob, so glad to have this opportunity to talk to you uh, about your experiences as a leader and especially the military training you received. I think that's a really interesting aspect of your background, but First, I just need to better understand this thing called Sandhurst. Like, What is it? Where is it? How did you get there? Uh, what did you do while you were there?
0: Go back to the start of my military career, Well, I actually enlisted as a private soldier to start off with. And uh, I was uh, determined to join the army to go to sea, which people always laugh at, but uh, the military have landing craft and do beach assaults and, you know, sort of D-Day st- type stuff. And I wanted to do that. And uh, I actually had a, a good couple of deployments around the world. And uh, I had the the educational requisites to uh, head into officer training. And so after a number of recommendations in the selection process, I got into the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which is uh, the leadership school, the officer training establishment for the British Army. Uh, Some say it's the kind of military equivalent of uh, West Point, Annapolis, etc. And uh, I started off as an officer cadet, having actually served nine years already in the military. So I was actually one of the older boys in my class.
1: Did you go there with the intent that you were also earning some sort of uh, degree or like a career track? Like you compared it to, uh, say, Annapolis or West Point. In my understanding it's not a four-year program.
0: No, it's not. It's, it's all of the leadership um, program from the four years you get. So the degree actually comes later or before, depending on where you are in that kind of track. But this is all about teaching you to be a leader of soldiers and how to conduct yourself how to uh, lead them on operations. And it's really the kind of start point of what is a continuous education process in leadership throughout your military career, of course, depending on how far you get. And so the course is 44 weeks. It starts off with sort of classic five-week boot camp, as uh, you'd call it over here, now, bearing in mind I'd been a, an NCO in the army already, so I literally had to start all over again and pretend I couldn't march when I really could march and well. fire a rifle when I could really could fire a rifle. But the first five weeks is spent sort of boot camp, and then the first semester or the first term is sort of very basic, uh, you know, infantry-level tactics. And they use, as they describe it, they use the vehicle of the infantry platoon to teach you leadership, to teach you about yourself, to teach you where your breaking points are, to break you down and build you back up, and, you know, to get you ready to go and command a platoon or a troop of of soldiers, and so then that kind of builds as each term goes by until you reach the the end of the class or the course where you then uh, are awarded the Queen's Commission. And actually, on my wall I have the scroll signed by Her Majesty herself that uh, welcomes me to the Queen's Commission as a second lieutenant in the British Army.
1: Excellent, congratulations! For some listeners, it's probably counterintuitive to think that you would go to a classroom. To learn leadership and so what's the like blend of say like academic coursework classroom style versus like I guess field experience and mentoring or even evaluations of your skills as a leader? It's
0: probably, that's a good question, actually. It's probably about 50-50. So uh, sort of, you know, block of weeks, if you like, you'll have a classroom phase where you're talking about the theory of that particular element of leadership or that particular element of commanding a platoon of people works and then you go to the field and of yeah. course you know it's as always the case you can have some really bright smart gifted people in the classroom but you put them out in adversity in the elements and we're talking about the United Kingdom here so in the rain uh, as we always say if it ain't raining it ain't training they're out there of course you know those that are have a little bit more resolve come to the fore You know, and actually it's, it's a great balancing act because you'd normally find the, you know the highly academic folk in the classroom struggle a bit in the field and vice versa but everybody, everybody helps each other and that kind of Rising tide lifts and brings everybody together for the end. So a lot of it is spent, you know, in the field, in the the Welsh mountains, in the Scottish mountains. Um, you know, humping the rucksack from A to B, conducting a lot of platoon attacks and tactics. Because of course, what that requires you to do is to think, to plan. And to execute. And again, that's sort of sort of a lot of what my takeaways even to this day are about, you know, you need time to think, you need time to plan, you need time to execute, and of course then you need time to evaluate. And so the cycle continues.
1: So speaking of time, Sandhurst isn't an organization that, you know, uh some management consultants like dreamed up in the like early two thousands to help out like uh kids that are not having the same uh challenges of their grandparents, but this is like a, a really old and storied institution.
0: Absolutely, back back in the day, in the sort of seventeen hundreds, when when we were when we were at war, Greg. Uh, back <laughs> then, you remember those days. Uh, before you, you know, somebody threw the tea in the harbor. Officers in the British military purchased their commission. In other words, they were from the landed gentry, and you know okay. their fathers, or they thought that it would be good to get some experience, and so they would pay money to be an officer in a certain regiment. Come, you know, eighteen twelve, they realized that gentleman officer cadets need to be educated in the art of military leadership and the art of warfare. And so in 1812, the first of Sandhurst's colleges, old college, uh, was constructed. And uh, that's when officer training sort of began in earnest where people would go through and, and the courses have varied over time over the years sometimes they've been 2 years sometimes they've been 1 year uh, and then eventually in 1912 a second college was added which was a new college in 1912 it was new college and then <laughs> a little bit later another college was added which was a sort of concrete uh, monstrosity known as victory college and so the three colleges were in Sandhurst and and, and the way it works nowadays is you start off in uh, old college which is a very grandiose you know marble staircase pillars and beams yes. and then you move into to new college, and so that's that's how it works. And so okay. it started in eighteen twelve, and of course it's now you know the the institution where not only British officer cadets go to, but also a lot of other nations send their young. Uh, men and women to be trained as officers. And so I, in my class, I had somebody from Saudi Arabia, somebody from the Sudan, uh, somebody from Singapore, somebody from wow. Brunei in my class. And there was a whole range of uh, overseas cadets, as they were called, uh, were, were yeah. also part and parcel, had to do exactly the same course uh, under the same conditions, the same requirements as well. And so it's a, a leadership institute. And actually now in, in in this decade, actually the United States send people there. Huh. Um, And so because, of course, with the ROTC system here, you may not have gone to West Point, but actually, you you still, you know, go through the ROTC program. And then one or two people a year now are offered a year at the Royal Military Academy to really finish off that leadership education. And so, you know, there are now United States cadets actually at the academy as well.
1: When you finished, did you go back to uh, landing craft or did your career take you in a different direction?
0: It took me in a different direction and uh, the rest from there is history. And so when when you are in the academy as a cadet, then you are sort of not aligned to any particular element of the army and you kind of go through virtually job interviews and what they look at is how you are doing as a cadet how your performance is obviously the, the academic stuff there's a lot of defense and international affairs a lot of communication studies so it's not just digging holes in the ground and firing rifles there is that kind yeah. of uh, education as, as well that, that goes with that so they take that all into account and how you perform overall you know how fit you are how fit for purpose you are and then the job offers come along and so I was kind of looking at logistic-based employment and then along came this organization called the Royal Army Medical Corps. Hmm, okay. medics, I thought. That's interesting. Cool. Tell me about the medical corps. Well, as a young officer, you know, you are, and bearing in mind, I'm, you know, as I say, the oldest classman in my intake because I, yeah. you know, had a good time being a soldier on operations first. But, you know, you get a span of command straight out of the academy that not a lot of other people have. So I literally finished. I went through the military medical young officer training class, which wasn't the Sandhurst. It's in the, at the sort of, you know, special to purpose center. And then I was in charge of 30 armored vehicles, 50, 50 soldiers, plus a field surgical team with very senior oh. surgeons the idea being of course is that in military medical evacuation you supposedly know where the battle is going to occur so you can set up your medical response before the battle starts yeah. and then you can withdraw your casualties quickly aggressive surgical resuscitation which is why surgery is right at the front this is literally arrive cut shut clamp move yeah. um, and so you know that was my span of command straight out of uh, straight out of the school which was uh, fantastic
1: when was this like what's the the year you started in the Royal Medical Corps and like the the total time and like what were sort of the so, world events? So I classed class
0: that point as when I started in EMS okay. because my role was to do nothing but be in charge of pre-hospital leadership, evacuation, uh, provision of medical care and that was 30 years ago coming up on April 11th.
1: Okay, so, so 91.
0: Yeah, 19. Yeah, actually, it was April 92. So, 92. April 11th coming up. So, okay. I, I class this as my 30th anniversary coming up in EMS. And so, I had the privilege to do uh, that. I, I served a further 10 years. And so, I had a total of just over 20 odd years in, in the military service. And I sort of went from from Sandhurst through a range of leadership positions. And the way that they look after you is you conduct a, a field appointment. So you're in an in a active service unit, and then you go back onto the staff, think like the Pentagon or a level headquarters. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so you go in and out. And as an older young officer, I was moving every 18 months. I was going from one job to the next to the next in order to kind of you know catch me up. And so I had some amazing times. I was in an air mobile medical unit where instead of ambulances, we used helicopters to go to work every day that for two years, including time in uh, the former Yugoslavia, uh, the breaking of the siege of Sarajevo, um, Srebrenica, which was an awful, uh, an awful event. And, you know, a a really informative educational time. And I ended up as a a major working in a headquarters where I worked for a two-star major general and was uh, actually one of the senior briefing officers for the Army Medical Services.
1: So as you think back to that time and, um, you know, the leadership you learned at Sandhurst, and now it's like, the rubber meets the road what were some of the like as you were embarking on this you were definitely a leader at this point like capital l leader like what were some of the like principles of leadership that you were uh putting your own stamp on or sort of testing out to see like this is something that's going to work with my unit or it's not going to well
0: first of all as, as a cadet we had to memorize at the time these Six principles, which were known as the Commandant's principles, and so the Commandant of the Academy, you were issued a a yellow card that went in the bottom right-hand corner of your mirror, perfectly placed for inspection, and the and the six principles on there, which I've carried through even to today. If you find some of my uh, you know supervisors and staff that worked with me even up to a couple of years ago, they will be able to recite these too. They have stood me in good stead for the last three decades, and so. Pride, integrity, learning, humor, service, courage. And so let me explain that a little bit. So the first principle is pride. Always be proud of yourself and be proud of those that you work with. Be proud of what they achieve. And I also add the extra P which should promote what they're doing because we all have something to be proud of and we should do. Integrity, I don't need to go any further. Integrity is absolute. It's needed. Uh, you have to be a good leader and one that people will follow uh, because you are, you have that high level of integrity. Learning. um, There is never a day anywhere in the last 30 years where I haven't learned something. And everybody learns something every day, even though you don't realize that there's a lesson that you take away, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's something that you store in the back of your mind, whether it's a formal presentation, whether it's CE, whether it's update. Learning occurs every single day. You must always be alert for that. Humor is actually the H in uh, in these six principles, and it's the ability to laugh at yourself and with others. So laugh at yourself and with others, not laugh at other people, because <laughs> a little bit of humor injected actually goes a long way. You know, the Patch Adams School of Medicine, um, as Churchill said, attitude is everything. And uh, it just helps lighten the load a little bit and get things done. Service, you know, I believe that EMS, like the military, isn't a job; it's a way of life. We are here. The motto of the Royal Military Academy is "serve to lead." Be that servant leader and lead and lead well. So, serve to lead. And courage. Yeah. Just finally, great courage, which yeah. I think is an important point. Courage comes in two parts. There's that physical courage, that strength you have as an army officer, or you know, dealing with a riot, uh, civil disorder situation where you have the have to have the physical courage to be strong. But more importantly, is the mental courage or moral courage, which is the courage to say no when something's not right. And sometimes that's more important than the than the strength type of courage. So having the moral courage to speak up when something is wrong or needs to be changed. So those six principles have kept me going. And I have to say, if you're listening from Richmond, they kept all of my super. Every time you got promoted, you went through a ceremony where you stood in front of me and I discussed my six principles, which are the Commandant's six principles and how I would like them to conduct themselves.
1: I can easily visualize in that Santerse setting and you put the card in the mirror, and the importance of discipline and accountability. How did you, um, you know, under the duress of uh, deployment and even uh, combat, like hold yourself to those principles of leadership, and then also like make sure that the the people that you commanded knew that you were a, a principle-driven leader?
0: Well, first of all, it is leadership by example it's the ability to be there with them in in their adversity or in their situation and it's something that you know we need right now uh, more than ever because of the pandemic because of covid we're currently you know on the eve of omicron if you look at what's happening in the uk it's only a matter of weeks now before we have the same situation here it requires people to be visible to be heard uh, to be clear, and to be a great communicator, to be able to pass on what's going on, what the situation is, what the impact is on them, uh, honestly and openly, don't uh, pull any punches, and be able to convey the plan and the confidence in the plan that you know you as the leader are going to help them out of it, help them through it, help them around it. And so you know, what Sandhurst gave me was that confidence to be the leader because I had a chance to look at something, analyze it, conduct you know a bit of mission analysis. Um, interestingly, you talk about you know do we have a team of management consultants in um, when the academy started? No, we didn't. But interestingly, all business and all industry now have mission statements. They have you know uh, these sort of uh, mission analysis and these sort of the support tasks that go. Where did that come from? It actually came from the military art of mission analysis um, and. Delivery of operations. And so it's kind of the other way around, actually, when you think about it. People think that the army is just soldiers blindly marching up and down, you know, doing rifle drill, forming hollow squares. But actually, it's quite a cerebral activity. It requires a lot of thought, a lot of planning, a lot of saying, so what? Well, so what? If this happens, what do I need to do next? Because uh, von Moltke in 1847, the chief of the Imperial German staff, said something that I use even to this day that no plan survives contact with the enemy in other words you may have a good plan but the opposition in this case it could be covid aren't reading our policies are doing their own thing so you have to be flexible you have to be cerebrally aware and you have to be prepared to be in front
1: robin in a moment i'm going to ask you about how you went from the military and into civilian ems but first i want you to give a shout out to our sponsor
0: Thank you. So uh, in a second, I'm going to hand over to George from Blink, who is this uh, show's show sponsor. Given the current workforce challenges, retention is now more important than ever. By ensuring that field staff feel appreciated, informed, and listened to, Blink's all-in-one employee app is currently helping EMS providers across the nation to improve their retention rate significantly. With Blink, frontline employees are able to communicate with their managers receive company updates, and gain access to key systems like payroll and scheduling, all within an easy-to-use mobile app. If you're interested in finding out how Blink can help your organization to improve employee retention and engagement, then please visit www.joinblink.com forward slash demo to learn more. This is George Monk from Blink. Thank you for listening.
1: Rob, it sounds like just a fantastic training experience you had through Sandhurst and then that chance through... 20 years in the service to uh, put all that into practice and to lead others and serve and be a teacher. And I'm wondering, like, first, why did you leave the military? It seemed like you were in the catbird seat there, uh, but you did. And then how'd you end up in in the civilian EMS world, first in the UK and then in America?
0: It's a very good question that not many people ask me. So first of all, a lot of my peers are now just coming to the end of their military careers in their mid-50s. And sometimes you have that moment where you look at them and you think, ah, but for the grace of God, there goes I. And, uh, you know, back in the day, I had a, a young family, actually. And when my kids said, Dad, where is it this time? Where are you going? You know, I was an absentee father. I've got to be quite honest. And sometimes family and military Aren't conducive, and so it was one of those command decisions at the time to think, well, you know, my certainly my two oldest children were classic military kids. They moved. They, I can't. Re- we actually have a spreadsheet somewhere where me and the two older boys particularly I made it. Made, I've made a list of the places they've lived, and huh. it's eye-watering that we moved from A to B to C to D to E to Z. And of course, that's no life for them. And so yeah. that was one of those decisions. Secondly, I realized that uh, coming up at the age of uh, 38, 39, that, uh, you know, if you're going to start a second career, there is an optimal time where you're going to be too late in doing that. And so I took yeah. a command decision. Um, I sort of reached what was, you know, the military pension point, a bit like firefighters. You do your so many years and then you can, you know, going to get a get a pension. Remember, I said I was working for a two-star general. So I walked in and said, uh, sorry, general, um, here's my resignation. And. Unlike, you know, the US where you give two weeks notice, it's a seven month notice period. So, uh, you know, here's my seven month general and uh, I'm going to leave. You know, what can I do to make you stay? Well, you know, $50,000 a year pay rise would be pretty cool, but otherwise uh, uh-huh. I'm off. That was my decision to move. And when you leave, you have what's called a resettlement period. So you can either go and do some further education or you can go and do some sort of, you know, attachment to industry. And so one of the things that I did was that way years before, interestingly, when we deployed to Bosnia for the first time, um, what happens in the military is that when you are told you're going to deploy somewhere, they immediately send you a ton of replacements to bring your unit up to strength. And of course, as a medical unit, we had a lot of these brand new medics straight out of training come to us, which is good. We're up to strength, but actually their level of experience was fairly minimal. It's fairly academic, fairly classroom based. And so what we did is we got in touch with all of the ambulance services around our, our brigade area and said, hey, we've got these medics, can we send them to you for ride-alongs? That was kind of the, the nugget of what happened next, because years later, I then went back to the same service and went, hey, I've got a few months off, is so there anything yeah. you need doing? And they went, well, we're doing this thing called Make Ready Logistics. And I went, oh, yes, what's that then? And they explained what the Make Ready speed loading logistics system was and said, would you come and do a study and work out how we can implement it? And so I then ended up spending a, a wee while going around this particular uh, EMS service. And in the UK, of course, ambulance services are much, much bigger than, even though the US is bigger physically than the UK, the UK has bigger services because they're regional. And so I conducted a logistic study into what was called the make ready ambulance system. And that's what they implemented. And so I wrote the, the logistic plan for the East of England ambulance service as it was then um, on how to, you know, become efficient, economize, you know, every EMS station. And this is the same I've been... I've I've seen it in the US. Every EMS station has a store. That store is full of stuff. That stuff is sometimes out of date. You have someone that works at the station that is the master keeper of the store, and he always likes he or she likes to have a full store because it looks good. They Mm -hmm. never use the stuff. And I did. I went went through that experience and went. You know, do you know how much is on the shelf here that's going to waste? How much money you're leaving up? You're throwing away and so we went to make ready the make ready system and that's from there a job followed uh, which was actually not in in the ambulance service but i became what was called the commissioner of ambulance services so i was the guy that was responsible for spending the money on ems around the east of england and so i was given a budget from the the, the, the national health service in our area i purchased the ambulance service so i was that i was the bean counter the financial monitor the performance manager and so i learned that bit of the industry first And then after that, they realized that, uh, you know, "Mm, this guy's a a bit of an operations man, really. And so after about a year and a half, they went, well, the operations director's job's coming up. Would you like to apply for it? Of course, I applied for it. And so I went from the commissioner to the operations director. So, Greg, for the first two weeks, believe it or not, I was answering my own letters.
1: There you go. Yes,
0: reference Mr. Lawrence's letter signed Mr. Lawrence. So that's <laughs> and I, and I started off as the operations director so I went straight into because obviously I'd had this kind of pre-hospital experience I had yeah. the the NHS performance management experience that I'd gained being the commissioner, I you know I got the job straight as the operations executive director of operations, and uh, that was across um, three counties in the United Kingdom, uh, East Anglian Ambulance Service as it was, and uh, I had an amazing boss. His name was Dr. Chris Carney, who you know believed in me and uh, gave me you know full range to be innovative, to and to lead and to think. Yeah. And of course, thinking is a key part of this. And so you know we don't spend a lot of time talking about the cerebral activity of leadership. And sometimes you have to just take a moment to think about what you're going to do next. Um, It's a bit like, you know, my dear mother, God bless her, if it was in her head, it was out of her mouth without the point of thinking about it. And so (laughs) I always kind of, the family family laugh about that. But, uh, you know, sometimes you have to have that pause where you think about what you're going to say next, what you're going to do next. And so, you know, that little cerebral time is absolutely key to making a good decision or to making a decision. And so that's kind of uh, where I I started.
1: I'm interested. So now you've you said three regional services. Like your span of control here is, I mean, maybe you're still supervising the same number of direct people, but the number of people and the budget you're responsible for has gone up probably quite a bit. The brigade level yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so
0: so in, in, i mean the budget we were on probably a 50 to 60 million
1: pound budget
0: across five thousand square miles with about four and a half million people and a 212 ambulance peak of day
1: well so the kind of the question i'm getting at is um sometimes i think we see these cases where like the company gets so big uh the leader gets so out of touch of the people that it just becomes uh, like a numbers game of like, how do we balance the books here, most efficiency? But then how did you like continue to draw on those Sandhurst leadership principles? The scope of what you were supervising was a lot bigger, uh, but whether people are sleeping in a foxhole or sleeping in an ambulance station, they still want to know that they have leaders that care about them. Yeah. Uh, like, So how did you stay true to those leadership principles in that size of an organization?
0: Three things, first of all, communication, training, and trust. And so no matter what, and you've listened to me for long enough, Greg, to realize that I the first thing I talk about is communication. It's the first casualty in an operation. Um, It's the thing that always fails first. And so I become a bit of a communication bore at times because I'm very keen on communicating, getting the message, understanding what's going on. And so to be able to convey to your team what your intent is, what the intent of the organization, so they at least understand what, what you're thinking about, is absolutely key. Training them fit for purpose, having key people that can do the jobs and do the right jobs Absolutely essential. And then by, by doing that, then you start to get trust or start to promote trust. And then you know that the people that you've employed and you've trained are doing a good job. They have the same sort of philosophical outlook that you do. Uh, they're capable of working towards the mission they understand that 's a, a transparent operation, and the uk is a bit like the u s of course the you know unison which was the union the paramedic union was a part of the national Health unison Union, which is the biggest union in Europe and so you know in a union environment having great communications uh, having a good liaison with the you know the union team to let them know that you are doing everything with a good heart, the best intentions, and with your workforce in mind. Is absolutely key, and uh, you know, I spent every day facing off with the union shop steward. In fact, we even paid for them to have a day in the office a week with us uh, because <laughs> then we could have those one to one rather than trying to, you know, I'll meet you at such and such station at some wee dark hour. I'm going to yeah. pay for you to be off the truck and in the office so we can have those dialogues one to one, face to face. We can have the discussions up front, and uh. That was an initiative that my boss, again, Dr. Carney, brought into the system. When I got to Alameda, interestingly, I did exactly the same thing. I I took the union president off the truck and gave him a day in the office because that way we could have a a great dialogue.
1: You've just uh, leaped across the ocean here to Alameda County, California. Uh, But there was a stop in between uh, with the Richmond Ambulance Authority in, in Virginia and the you know, when I first became aware of you and your work, it was through something you were doing called Word on the Street, which was uh, social media. And it was the first thing that came to my mind when you mentioned pride and uh, as one of your core values, and that uh, not only pride in the work you do, but you added promotion. And that, that Word on the Street, the daily it's promotion of the – Service, the people in it, the work they do—you um, know. So now you're at Richmond Ambulance Authority; you're this operations uh, chief of operations there, uh, but you're continuing to bring these values. Like, how did that? Did they recruit you because they knew you?
0: Let's go back
1: one stage. So Wait, I want to finish my question. Go on then. (laughs) Uh, Remember, we turned the tables here, Rob. It's it's terrible being the
0: guest. Oh, Lord. (laughs) I I have a whole new appreciation for guests now. (laughs) Uh,
1: Did they recruit you specifically because they knew you were going to bring that set of values with you? Or did you realize when you got there of like, hey, these principles I used or values, at Sandhurst on deployments around the world uh, for the National Health Service and uh, the EMS organizations, those will work here too, like, so, That's my question, and and you can answer it however you want.
0: Okay, I'll break it down into parts, Greg, each part being numbered. So going back a bit, so we had started off this thing where we put medics out into the community to be there first when a 999 call came in, because what we discovered was if you had one ambulance in the locality, if you were the first patient, great, you got the ambulance, and the ambulance trundled off to hospital. If you were the second patient, you didn't get anything and so what we did was we put these paramedics out into the into the small towns and this is now 15 or so years ago and we had to decide what to call them and somebody said well let's call them paramedics in the community no 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 let's call them community paramedics and so my claim to fame is i was in on the start point of that and then we we started to sort of get get into the international sort of community paramedic and uh, siam which is uh, the nurse call taking siam at the time was priority solutions integrated access management and I and I ran into this guy called Jerry Overton, and Jerry was the the executive director of RAA at the time. And we then went over on a study tour. So I'm going from one of the largest ambulance services in the UK to a city-based EMS system, which was Richmond, to study it. And we sent a ten-person team over there, and just to look at what they're up to. And I came back and I had to report to the board. And the first question was, "Hang on a second, we are massive, and this is a smaller system. What can we learn from them?" And so, of course, we got into high-performance EMS, to dynamic deployment, to how everything is about efficiency, to how the system works. And so, I presented this back in the lot. Mm, there's some some good stuff here. In the meantime, Jerry came along and said, uh, "Anyway, so how do you fancy coming to Richmond?" Huh. And so, nice. uh, now bearing in mind I was married to an American at the time, I had a green card, and so I literally emigrated to the US along with the family, okay. and so I ended up in Richmond and. Uh, that was now 13 years ago. Um, yes, it was much smaller than what I had before, but actually the type of system that it was, it had a world-class reputation. It worked with a world-class research institute, had a world-class medical director, Dr. Joseph P. Ornato. He, he's the guy that created the chain of survival. Who wouldn't want to work with him. And so all of those things aligned. And uh, I went from, you know, the aircraft carrier that takes, you know, 10 miles to stop or to turn left to the, you know, the, the very swift frigate that can turn on a dime, that can maneuver, that can adjust, can adapt, can improvise, can innovate. And so that was what I really, really struck me about, you know, the city of Richmond and the Richmond EMS. And then, of course, you meet the people and they're like, well, what are you doing here? And I went, listen, I've been around the world and this is world class EMS. And the problem with, uh, you know, the guys on the ground, of course, they're in a in a classic inner city with, you know, Richmond had always been on the FBI top homicide list per 100,000 per capita, um, you know, opioids I and mean, all those sort of inner city things you you see. Richmond had it going on. And so the medics were, I always describe the fact that the medics got their experience there in dog years. Any, you know, <laughs> one year in Richmond is seven years anywhere else just because of the volume and the complexity and the trauma uh, and the drama um, of, of operating in an inner city. And it was truly outstanding. And so, you know, I, I said to folk, this is world-class EMS. Like, oh, anyone could say that. I went, no, no, listen, I've been around and seen it. And I told them it's a bit like being on Krypton, right? Unless you get off Krypton, you don't realize you can fly. And yeah. these guys were on kryptonite, believe me. And so yeah. that, that was the, the system. And it's the way the system is today. The guys do a hell of a job. And of course, let's be a, be proud about it. And so then communication. You mentioned communication, sort of checking off, off your list in your part of the question. Yeah. We had a town hall meeting one day. One of the guys went, Well, nothing goes on around here. Nobody tells us anything. We have no idea what's going on. And I thought, OK, I'll take that as a challenge. And I said to the team, Right, for a week. We will publish every day a piece of news. And we started off that week, and then it went on for a month and a year, and it's just past a decade because every day in every EMS system, and actually Mark Tenya, who came in as the PIO when I left, um, we didn't have a PIO, I was kind of double-hatting because that's one of my hobbies, but Mark's kept it going, and thank you, Mark, if you're listening. Um you know, the news is an amazing decades-long yearbook of activity in, in Richmond. But the point being is that in every EMS system, there is news, there's something going on, there's something of interest, whether it's a, a new member of staff, whether it's an anniversary, whether it's brother and sister, husband and wife, um, you know, different campaign days, public holidays. There's always something happening and it's newsworthy if not to the main media, but actually to the staff to let them know you know what good they're doing. Cardiac arrest survivors, EMS week, police week, national nurses week, um, telecommunicator week. There's all sorts of things going on in an organization. And so let's celebrate that. And that's where that came from. And of course, it's now. And that went out internally, first of all. And then, of course, we put it on to uh, Facebook. And then we put it on to everywhere else. And and, and as I say, I'm very proud of that because it's still going strong now. They're maintaining it. And it's fantastic.
1: It is certainly a, a neat way to capture the history of that organization, but also just the day-to-day uh, pride that it shows that, you know, we're going to find something to share with not only our, our staff, but the community uh, every day for 10 years. I mean, and that's and, an and here's, here's my message
0: to any EMS system. Greg, if you look at the word on the street, right, it's two photographs and two or three paragraphs, and that's yeah. it. And if you can't muster that in a day, then you know, I, I I challenge people to do that. It's all it takes, and and literally, like my goodness, that's a big effort. No, it's two photographs and three paragraphs. I write it every morning. Finished.
1: Yeah, Rob, we've gone longer than maybe a normal episode of the EMS one stop. We have. So I do want to start leading us uh, towards the conclusion. This has been a fascinating conversation, and like I said at the outset, I I first knew you through word on the street. I knew that you had this military background and the learned a little bit about Sandhurst uh, before our speaking and this chance to hear more about it. You know, like you said, that's 30 years ago now, uh, but you've continued your study of leadership for 30 years and whether, uh, I guess I want you to imagine two types of listeners at this point. Uh, one person maybe is uh, similar to you and that they're listening to this and they think, well, I've been in a leadership position for 10 or 20 years already Uh, What more should I be learning about leadership? And then the other type of listener I want you to imagine is is somebody that's pretty new to their career in EMS, uh, maybe wanting to make the transition from field provider to supervisor, and then maybe someday to um, uh, another middle management and eventually chief uh, position. Like, Talk about the study of leadership and what advice you would have for people at different points in their career
0: one of my principles which is learning okay so you need to be able to learn you need to be able to read you need to be able to understand look at others how they're getting on look at look at leaders look at good leaders look at bad leaders as i said there is never a time where you don't learn anything um ems has a number of classes you might be able to get onto. so there's uh, you know the sort of beyond the streets um uh EMS Supervisor Bootcamp, Amblet Service Manager. Uh, There's a number of those types of classes. When you go to conferences, uh, you know, go and go into the leadership track, listen to people that have been there and done that and had the experience. And actually not only listen to what they're saying, but also afterwards question them about. So when do you have a challenging time? When did you have a time where you had to make a command decision that went against the grain? Um, how do you deal with those things as well? Because I've been fairly upbeat, Greg, in, in this discussion yeah. and not talked about the difficult decisions. But actually, sometimes you have to be prepared to take a difficult decision as well as an easy no-brainer decision as well. So take just just observe, learn, and also grow within the organization that you're in. But also yeah. I think EMS in the US is fragmented. The organizations aren't particularly that big. And so sometimes you might have to move on to move up. A lot of my guys actually, you know, and I'm going to shout out Brian Hupp and Todd Sheridan and Jen Reese and others that have moved out of Richmond that were with me. And and we and every one of them I had the heart to heart with. And the heart to heart was, you know, we all love working here. But actually, if you've had to be presented with an opportunity to grow, to progress, and to improve yourself. You must always take it and so and you know, and I'm very proud of those people because they've gone on to do amazing things
1: that's wonderful and that's part of bill leader being a leader is like leaving a legacy if you know the people you've taught or mentored uh continue to uh lead, whether it's that same organization or different places i, I you mentioned making challenging decisions, and I think it's easy to imagine of like. Uh, I'm making a popular decision and look how well it aligns with all these values. And cause everyone's happy. Uh, it's, it's making difficult decisions uh, and then squaring those with the values that you hold personally, as well as the organization's values, even though there could be outcomes that uh, leave some people uh, maybe not physically hurt, but uh, emotionally hurt or, uh, you know, whether maybe it's a decision to downsize or, or discontinue a, a product like any thoughts like uh, ems leaders more than ever i think are facing challenging situations any thoughts uh to on making difficult decisions and then implementing those in an organization
0: well first of all think it through first don't be that guy that got on the zoom call and fired 300 people or however many it was that's you know bad bad karma not a good idea who on earth thought of that so think it through first also rehearse it through in your mind or rehearse it with somebody else. If you have some some bad news to give, you know, perhaps you just need to be prepared to A, work out how to deliver it and then B, think through what, what the you know, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And so you need to work out what's going to happen next. So, you know what you shouldn't be afraid to do, though, is to deliver bad news if if you have to do that. And uh, a, a case in point is one of the is is one that I've done many many times, and talking to other people, they've done many many times. When somebody applies for a job, there's six applicants, only one of them gets the job, the other five applicants don't get the job, and you make that phone call. What do you start off with? And a lot of time, you spend 20 minutes talking about the weather and you know yeah. what, what you're doing at the weekend when really what you want to say is, and I'm sorry you didn't get the job. And so what I learned over time, for example, just the delivery of bad news is when you phone that person, they're waiting for you to say yay or nay. So start off with that. And so, Greg, unfortunately, I'm not going to appoint you. And here's Absolutely. why. Yeah. And then perhaps we can talk about sandwiches, the beach, or the weather. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's one of those ones where you get it out of the way first and then explain why you've done it. Because if you start yeah. you know sandwich technique sometimes is is good, you know you deliver a bit of good news, deliver the bad news and a bit of good news, but sometimes you have to use I don't know think of an analogy here the, uh, the the open top sandwich with no lid you've got to get into the meat and then you can finish off with the bread yeah, so how to deliver bad news 101
1: Thank you Rob. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. you certainly filled in some uh, gaps in my knowledge of your training and, and experience and uh, about you know, just educating me more about Sandhurst and that, you know, really life-changing leadership training experience you had. Um, I'll give you a chance to uh, give a final thought to people that are listening. and, And since you are the guest, you can tell them where they can find you on various social networks.
0: Well, thank you very much. And I guess I get to take my show back now, Greg. So that's pretty cool. Um, final thoughts. We talked a lot about military stuff, okay? And military, as I say, isn't the TikTok tactics, do thing. Do as I say, not as I do. These days, it's about a cerebral activity. You know, tactics is not the opinion of the senior person present. So if you're in an EMS organization or a military organization, and you have a good idea Don't be backwards in coming forwards with that. Bring that forward to the leadership. It's not you challenging their leadership. It's you coming up with an idea. You may have seen something that helps the organization, helps a group of individuals, helps the process. So don't be afraid to knock on the door of the corner office. It's always a corner office, right? And actually pass that idea on, first of all. My door was always open. Um, It's a bit cliched, as I used to tell people, my door is always open unless it's closed and I'm talking about you, but usually it's open. So don't be afraid to uh, to, to come forward. Um, lead by example. Attitude is everything. Also, I never mentioned this, Greg, but give credit where credit is due. You have a successful organization. Inevitably, it's not the it's not because of one single person. It's because of the team. So make sure you share the glory with everybody. You're a team. And as I said before, no plan survives contact with the enemy. But also, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. So you've got to think about that. Anyway, that's enough from me. Uh, You can uh, follow me on uh, LinkedIn or indeed on Twitter at UKRobL1. And also, if you're enjoying the show, just take a second to rate us on the platform in which you are listening on, because it gives us a few extra stars, puts us up the searchability rating, and so we continue to to fly high in the charts. Uh, so that's about all from me. I'm going to throw it back to you, Greg. Greg, you are the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, the three main titles, EMS1, Police1, and Fire Rescue one How can we get hold of you, Greg?
1: Well, Rob, thanks for this opportunity to turn the tables on you and let me interview you. Maybe we'll do this again sometime. Uh, Certainly, people can find me on Twitter at G. Freeze, Greg Freeze on LinkedIn, or if you send an email to editor at EMS1 or editor at police1 or editor at firerescue1.com, for all those it will reach me and we can connect directly uh rob thanks for all you've uh, done for ems i love that you ended with the note about pride and promotion uh you so easily weave those sandhurst values into uh the work you do and your advice for others so thanks so much rob and keep up the great work with the ems one stop
0: greg thank you very much and so everybody he's been greg freeze i've been rob lawrence and until next time bye for now